Always appreciate it. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord with the church this morning as we gather to worship. And uh, now we're going to worship uh, by digging into God's Word together today. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. And we are going to pick back up as we continue to push forward, uh, making this journey through the letter to the Romans that we started uh, quite some time ago now. And I couldn't help but think, uh, as we were singing that last song about God's awesome, mighty, and power, and how big He really, truly is, that we're going to come up here and dig into Romans 14, which has Him dealing with us in such a personal, close way. That is an amazing, amazing truth that we so often uh, just gloss over, that this God who created all things cares about how we treat our wives and our husbands, how we treat our brothers and sisters, and that he leaves us instructions to, to um, do that in the proper way that will bring him glory. So as we get to uh, chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 to 13 together. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the other who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account to himself of, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is the word of the Lord. Today, as we turn our attention to chapter 14, I, I want to remind us, as it's been a couple of weeks since we've completed chapter 13, where we're at in the book of Romans. Um, if we think back to chapters 1 through 11, we have Paul explaining to the church man's uh, state of sinfulness before God, God's right wrath that will come upon sin, and we see what it means to be justified by faith alone in Christ, apart from the works of the law before God, and we see how God has applied this salvation to His people throughout history. That is the 10-second summation of Romans chapters 1 through 11 for you there. And once we get to chapter 12, Paul begins to paint a picture for us as readers as to what it looks like as we go about our lives, not in the way that we used to live, not in the way according to our flesh, 
But no, according to us now being slaves to Christ. No longer slaves to our sin, but slaves to Christ being conformed to His image. And chapters 12 and 13 beautifully walked us through what this looks like. What it looks like when we as Christians strive to live our lives according to Christ's commands and not according to our flesh, not according to our own will. And today we find ourselves now in chapter 14 in a place where we're being challenged to take that way of loving others that Paul had laid out in chapters 12 and 13, which of course comes as the response to the doctrine of salvation he taught in chapters 1 through 11. And now we see how to apply what, we're, um, what we believe, walking it out in faith with the others around us. These others who are walking around us are working through the same issues in life that we are, but many of them we're going to find ourselves at times in disagreements with on how we practically walk through day-to-day decisions and how we think we are going to best honor the Lord. I know it's not unfamiliar territory for us, right? I'm sure we all have plenty of examples of what this looks like in our mind right now, but just think of a few of these categories, right? How do we educate our children? People fight to the death over some of that, right? What's the best way? Are you going to homeschool? Are you going to private school? Are you going to public school? This is the thing that we have to think through and we have to think about biblically and we have to pursue the Lord on to make a wise decision for our family. Right? What kind of instruments are we going to play with our music? People in churches fight to the death over what kind of instruments you're going to use for the worship. Right? What kind of activities, when you leave here today, are you going to engage in? There's real disagreements between people who are genuine brothers in the faith that say, you should do this on Sunday, you shouldn't do this on Sunday. Those are real things. And I know we've all been there, we've all done that, we've all had to um, address that in our own life, right? There are plenty of these things we can add to this list. And I know there are some of us in this room that would answer that question one way, uh, and another would answer it a different way. And this is why this chapter is going to be so important for us to walk through. This section of Romans is well known for the idea of Christian liberty. I'm sure many of you have probably heard that phrase before, and, and this is one of those key passages that kind of highlights Uh, some of the liberty we have and the freedom we get to enjoy in Christ. Because after spending 11 chapters laying the groundwork for us that our salvation is not dependent upon works of the law to make us righteous before God, but is on the work of Christ on the cross, giving us His righteousness, right, imputing it to us, that makes us right before God. So as you walk through those 11 chapters that Paul lays out, it's going to leave this question. This question naturally arises, what do we do with the law? What do we do and how are we obedient to God the way He wants us to be? When we have in chapters 12 and 13, if we think back to those for just a minute, we have some instruction for things that we can't dispute as brothers and sisters. We don't have a choice to disagree over whether we should be living in harmony with one another. That's something Paul says, just is. Do it. We don't have a choice on whether or not we get to repay evil for evil. Paul told us that in Romans 12, right? The government? We don't have the right to sit there and refuse to pay our taxes. Because Paul told us in Romans 13, they're a servant of God, punishing evil. 
So pay your taxes. I mean, thankfully we live in a place where we get to have some input on what that amount is occasionally, right? But the truth is still the same. We don't get to dispute whether or not we get to do it. And at the very end of chapter 13, in verse 13, Paul tells us to cast off the works of darkness, make no provision for our flesh to gratify its desires, saying, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality. Is that better? All I could think of was how loud I sounded before that, too. That was really weird. <laughs> okay. So since people online didn't hear it, I'm going to reread everything I just read. <laughs> just kidding. We'll have to... Uh, that's one of the uh, penalties for not being present with the body this morning. All right. So this is our challenge for us, right? This is our challenge for us as we go through these texts the next few weeks and we wrestle with this idea of Christian liberty and how we interact with one another and how we treat each other when we come to these things that are differences between us but are not sinful differences between us, right? And this is critical for us to be mature believers, to be that living sacrifice that Romans 12.1 tells us to be. I think we find kind of the heart of that, the heart of this passage, the heart of this next chapter Right at the beginning of verse 1, where Paul tells us not to quarrel over opinions. And we do this because as Christian brothers and sisters, we want to do what Paul says at the end of verse 13. Where he says, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This is the main idea and the reason why we need to understand it. This is going to be the key for us to see ourselves as mature Christians. And not just mature Christians to kind of puff ourselves up saying that, but mature Christians in how we're actually dealing with one another and how we're treating one another and how we're living out the commands of Christ in light of the great gospel we enjoy. 
So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to grow in our knowledge of God in such a way that it's going to cause our ability to relate to one another change. And it's going to change in ways that should uh, see us bringing honor to the Lord and bring life into our brothers and sisters. And this is where we start right, right there in verse 1. Look back at that with me. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Here in verse 1, Paul establishes this character that's going to be present through the rest of chapter 14. This character commentators refer to as the weaker brother. The weaker brother, Paul says, is to be welcomed in. Not to be cast aside, not to be pushed out, not to be left behind, but to be welcomed in by those who are stronger in faith. But this welcoming is not for the purpose of of debate, or as the text says, to quarrel over opinions. There are people that thrive on debates and on arguments, right? I can be one of those people. I enjoy a good debate. I enjoy sitting down and hashing it out and getting into it with people. People who are friends, people who aren't even friends, people I just met. I enjoy that. And those times can be okay. And sometimes it's fun for some people. But there's a lot of other people it's not. There's a lot of other people that aren't looking to debate every nook and cranny of every issue in life. And when you're the stronger brother, you're going to have to pay close attention to this today because we're going to have weaker brothers. And we're going to have people who will have the life sucked out of them as we sit there and we debate everything that's a non-issue. Paul tells us, as we have these weaker brothers, we should be welcoming to them. These people should not be written off or cast aside. And as tempted as it may be to get together with them, you know, to straighten them out, right? Because they need to be straightened out to think the way that you think because you're going to make them stronger in faith. If that's us, we need to watch ourselves. Because if our intention is to quarrel over opinions, then we're walking into conversations with our brothers and sisters with all the wrong motives. We're walking into those things completely ignoring the marks of a true Christian that Paul outlines for us back in chapter 12, where Paul tells us to do what? To love one another with brotherly affection. Where he tells us to live in harmony with one another. We're going to have disagreements with one another. And you may be the one who is demonstrating a stronger faith in Christ. And we're going to see what that looks like in just a minute. But if that truly is where you are, if you're coming to that conversation thinking that you're the stronger brother who needs to help the weaker brother in his faith, then your goal should immediately start with trying to prove the strength of your faith and how you're coming to your brother. You should be coming to him, striving to outdo him in showing honor. This is the framework right here in verse 1 that Paul sets for us for how we consider the address of our brothers who may be weak in faith. So what is this thing right now that Paul is describing? Weak and strong faith. What is this? Why why would Paul describe this in this way? What exactly is he talking about? Seems like such a strange way to talk about it, doesn't it? There's two particular examples Paul uses to help us get this idea. Look back at uh, verse 2. We're going to reread a couple of verses here. Paul writes, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The first example Paul gives us is um, the example of one who only eats vegetables. And what we have in verse 2 is not a joke about vegetarians versus meat eaters, right? Obviously the vegetarians are the weaker brothers, you know. That's plain to see. No, it's not a joke. And it's not a reference to physical weakness because someone is lacking in a balanced diet. The reference to only eating vegetable here is closely related to this controversy in the Corinthian church Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in verses 7 through 12. In that passage, Paul talks about a weakness of conscience in some of the brothers in regards to how they view the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. There was meat that these believers were going to buy that either was <clears throat> that was being sacrificed to idols, which left some saying, why are we eating this food that was dedicated to this other God that we know is not really a God? And there were some people that that affected in ways, and it created dissension amongst the church there. This is a similar controversy to what Paul's talking about here in chapter 14 of Romans. But how does Paul answer that in 1 Corinthians? I think in, in chapter 8, verse 8, he says this, "...food will not commend us to God." We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of this letter to the Romans meticulously laying out the idea that we are made right with God only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that pays our debt of sin. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 8 that it's not the food that we're eating that is commending us to God. It's not that food that's sitting there making us right before God. That only happens by the shed blood of Jesus washing our sins away. So now, why do we have people who've heard the gospel and believed it? They've heard that Christ has died for their sins and has paid their debt before God, but yet they're still following dietary laws. Why are they still worried that the food they are eating is commending them to God right now? This is what Paul is describing as those who are weak in faith. It is a brother who has genuinely heard the gospel, who has genuinely confessed and believed that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they look at some of that meat that they know has been sacrificed to idols, and they think, eh, not sure. I don't know about that. Or it's one who thinks, you know, I've been keeping these dietary laws my whole life, so eh, I might as well just kind of keep keeping them, right? And that's not out of a preference. That's not out of a taste for a particular type of food. But it's being done in that instance because, you know, just in case. The hesitation in assurance that Christ has won salvation for them once and for all causes Paul to describe it as being a weak faith. And I think here's where we get to the meat of the passage, no pun intended. Verse 3 says, let not the one who despises the one who abstains, 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord, or for the Lord is able to make him stand. In both cases, Paul tells us, and I'm sure we have examples in our own lives that we can relate to this, but in both the weaker brother and the stronger brother, we have the propensity to despise one another. The stronger brother can come to the situation and can easily boast in his freedom here, right? He can easily come and say, ha, I know it's Jesus. I know he's forgiven me my sins. Enjoy this big slab of pork ribs. Quit holding to those old things. They passed away. And he can boast in his liberty rather than in his Lord here. And when he does this, he looks down on his weaker brother because look at all this good food. Why don't you just partake with me? Well, it's easy to see the pride and the arrogance potentially coming out of that situation. The, the weaker brother is no better because the weaker brother can just as easily pass judgment onto the other brother and condemn them for being far too cavalier in their actions and look down on them for forsaking the commands of the Lord and try to put them back under a law to which Christ has not called them to be obedient to. And now we see in this way the division between the brothers here. We see the place where disharmony starts to creep in. We see right now where we look at people who are part of one body of Christ, and we look at these fellow believers, and we start to separate ourselves from them. We start to pull back, start to disengage. We stop treating them with that brotherly affection we're supposed to. Not because there's been sin that needs to be cut off, that isn't being dealt with, but because they just don't get it like we do. Paul reminds us here in verse 4, we are not the master, we are the servants of Christ. And he reminds us that it is in Christ to whom we will be accountable to. So for you stronger brother, don't take, your, or don't take for granted your liberty and let it lead you to lawlessness before the Lord. Because Christ is the master you serve and it is Him you seek to please. And for you, weaker brother, don't forsake the gift of mercy that you have found in Christ. He is the master that you serve. Don't put your hope and your trust in your own legalism, in your own obedience. This leads us into that second example Paul uses. And this example here deals with days that have been esteemed as holy. Look back at verse 5 with me really quick. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Like the dietary laws the Jews were required to keep under the law, there were numerous feast days and holy days that were to be kept, in addition to many, many, many rules for Israel to follow in order to keep the Sabbath properly. 
verse 5, Paul addresses the fact that now some are continuing to elevate certain days as holy days, like the Jewish practices uh, observed. But what Paul uh, says there are those that are doing that, we have others now that say every day is a holy day. Every day should be elevated and treated as a day that is to be used to seek and to serve the Lord. Paul has taught us that in Christ, throughout Romans, that the ceremonial law of the covenant that was given to Moses has been fulfilled. The rules and the regulations and the feast days and the observance of the Sabbath the way Israel was commanded to were all pointing to one thing, to one person, that is Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came in the world to die for sinners. Paul tells us this very thing in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. In that passage, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Think about the Passover. We're all familiar with the story, right? We know the story of the Exodus. We know how it was instituted. God comes to Moses and says, tell the people of Israel to slaughter an unblemished lamb. Take the blood, wipe it over the lentil of the door. Because I'm going to send the destroyer, and the destroyer is going to take every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. But if you and your house is covered by the blood, you will be passed over. The blood of the Lamb covering the house of the people of Israel to save them from death. Do we see the picture? Christ, who is the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God, sent from heaven, come to die on a cross. He who knew no sin, who took on our sin, to wash us clean, to make us new, to make us right with God. These feasts, these ceremonies, these rituals... We're pointing to Christ. A Sabbath rest ultimately belongs to Christ. There's a lot there that can be said about this, and this is not the sermon that we're going to deal with what the Sabbath looks like for Christians right now. But we, we have to remember that God gave us the Sabbath before the law of Moses. But to Israel, He gave a lot of laws and regulations that had to be followed in order to obey the Sabbath. And in Christ, we have something different than what Israel celebrated for that. Because ultimately, the substance of that belongs to Christ. Paul tells us in verses 6-8, through eight, The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. The weaker brother abstains. Why? In honor of the Lord. The stronger brother eats. Why? In honor of the Lord. The one who observes the day, Paul tells us, observes the day in honor of the Lord. Do we see a theme developing here? Do we see one of the key elements of this Christian liberty we get to enjoy? It is the honor of the Lord. Well, there is liberty for us as Christians from the ceremonial law of Israel. And whether we can fully comprehend what that looks like or whether we see someone taking extra precautions in their walk of faith to shield them from potential sin, the lives that we live out should not be lived to boast of our own liberty for its own sake. And we should not be living lives boasting in our keeping of the law for our own self-righteousness. Because both of those are ditches that we can easily crash into. One is legalism. Continuing to be obedient and working for salvation and approval before the Lord. And the other ditch is lawlessness. Where we can sit there and say, well, Jesus died for sin. Why not just keep on sinning? That's great. I can do whatever I want and be forgiven of it. By no means. Thank you. Paul reminds us here that we live and we die to the Lord. In all things and in every way, our lives belong to our Lord Jesus. So we have no room to boast of ourselves because of the life we live. This life that we live as a living sacrifice to the Lord is done not in us and our choices or our decisions, but it is done by conforming our lives to Christ. It's by modeling and shaping and molding our lives in the image of our Savior. And likewise, we have no room to pronounce self-righteous judgments on our brothers because of this. We have no room to despise our brothers because of the way in which they seek to be obedient to the commands of Christ. Because we live and we die to the Lord. That's why Paul tells us in verses 10 through 12, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. First part of this quote from Paul it sounds very familiar to Jesus' words in Matthew 7. I'm sure many of you remember that passage. That's the one where Jesus says, Judge not, and you will be judged. Or, Judge not, and you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. What kind of judgment are we passing on our brothers and our sisters in the faith? Are we seeking to judge well, to judge rightly and not hypocritically? 
When we do, when we judge hypocritically, we forget that ultimately we will stand before the judgment seat of God like Paul tells us. That we will see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is a thought that as someone who has confessed faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior from sin, that should cause us to think deeply about how we pronounce our own judgments. Are we quick-tempered? Are we easily frustrated when we address the weaker brother? Is that how Jesus dealt with you? Are we quick to condemn the stronger brother for lawlessness when maybe it might be that they are just not conforming to your ways and to things that your precautions that you're taking to keep yourself from sin? Once again, is that how Jesus treated you? Did he condemn you quickly and rightly from his perspective like he could have? Or did he demonstrate patience and long-suffering with hard-headed sinners? Jesus is the only just and right judge. Are our judgments on these matters lining up with his commands? Or are we doing what Paul said back in verse 1 and we're fighting with one another over our own opinions? See, Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness, church. And if you are a Christian and you say Jesus is your Lord, then we need to be ready to love our brother well. Not to quickly condemn or despise one another because he's shown us great patience and he's shown us kindness beyond anything we have ever deserved. And doing this will see us live according to the way laid out for us as believers in Romans 12. It will see us living in harmony with one another. It will see us striving to outdo one another with brotherly affection. Because we don't want to raise up stumbling blocks in the way of our brothers and sisters in the faith. We don't want to be a hindrance to them as they run this race. And likewise, they shouldn't want to be a hindrance either. But as Christians, whether weak or strong in faith, we should be striving to mutually build one another up so that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of God. So when that day of judgment comes, we stand before the Lord and we can say, Lord, I am yours and I have nothing else. So what does this look like for us on a day-to-day basis? There is a lot of meat in this passage, and I intend that pun this time. It's going to leave a lot for us to think about, along with things to do in our lives as we live for Christ. I think the first part for us to, to chew on right now is to realize, it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of us, that we are not God. Brian is making great faces today, by the way, y'all. <laughs> we are not God. We are not the Lord. We are the ones who serve Him. Paul says it back in verse 7. None of us lives to Himself. None of us dies to Himself. We're all going to live. We're all going to die. We can't control that. That is the world we live in. That is the taint of sin. And that is God bringing about um, His ultimate plan of redemption. But if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So we're not God. We're not the Lord over our brothers. We have to understand who is on the throne. And doing this is going to be the first step of being able to make right judgments 
And it's going to be, and it should be, the motivating factor in how we come to our brothers and our sisters. Because if we want to be people who are not looking to endlessly quarrel over opinions, it starts by looking past ourselves and looking to Christ, who is our Lord. So when we find ourselves in that situation where we have an issue in our head or with our conscience about a stronger or a weaker brother, how do we respond rightly? I want to challenge all of us here to make that first step to be back up, backing up two pages and reread Paul's instructions in Romans 12.9. Go back and see what it looks like to have the marks of a true Christian. Go back and look and read what it looks like to treat or on how a mature Christ follower treats others. Go back and read through that list and ask yourself, am I living out right now what this looks like? in whatever this situation is with your brother and sister. I think if we go back and we really ponder whether our love is genuine and whether we are truly showing brotherly affections, there's probably a lot of things in our lives that bug us about other people that probably fall into the category of opinions. And if that's the case, if we read that and we see what it looks like to be a mature believer and how we treat one another in the church then I would recommend you go to Psalm 4.4. And I would recommend you look at that where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. There are going to be things that are not salvation issues that will rise up between you and others. And not every one of those things has to be laid out on the table so as you start or lay down the table, which will ultimately raise up stumbling blocks for you and for your brother, sometimes when we examine our lives and we examine our own hearts and we look to the Scripture to see, are we mature believers right now? Are we carrying ourselves the way Christ calls us to? We're going to realize we're just going to have to sit on our bed and be quiet for a little while and let the Lord deal with us. Because if we don't, if we don't let Him deal with our own heart, before we go out, we're going to go out in our own power and we're going to start trying to fix everybody else's problems for them. And that's not our place. I think the second thing we have to remember is to make sure that we're dealing with our brother well and not raising up these stumbling blocks is going to require patience. And it's going to require a willingness to seek out wisdom. There's going to be work involved for us here. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to turn to the Scripture, and we're going to have to read, and we're going to have to understand what God's telling us to do, how God's called us to live our lives. That's why in that first point of application there, I said, let's go back and reread Romans 12, 9 before you try to have that conversation that you think is so vital with somebody, before you won't go to quarrel over that opinion. Go back and read Romans 12, 9. It's like we said before, not everything we see, or there's going to be some work involved for us here, because we have to be able to discern those things, and we can't come quickly, especially quickly in anger or in frustration, because that will raise up a stumbling block between us and them. But we also have to acknowledge, too, that not everything we see in the lives of others is a difference of opinion, because if we back up to chapter 13, in verse 13, we had that list Paul gave us that we read earlier. Paul tells us to walk properly as in the daytime. 
And this list of sin, this list of worldly passions that gratify our flesh, we're told to cast them off, to leave them behind. Leave behind your sin and put on Jesus. And you remember when we talked about Romans 13, we talked about that picture of putting on Jesus, actually like putting on a coat, putting on new clothes, right? So what Paul's telling us there is to lay those things aside like they were tattered, ratty coat and it's the middle of Michigan winter and you're freezing to death. Take on these new garments of righteousness, this new garment that Christ has prepared for you, this coat that is healing and brings salvation to our souls. Put Jesus on like that. Leave behind those old, tattered, ratty, sinful clothes behind because they're killing you. It's winter in Michigan. You need a coat. Put on Jesus. These things are not an opinion. This is how Christians should be living their lives. And if we aren't, we need to be ready, willing, and able to make right judgments on those things. Making these judgments requires us to use our brains to worship the Lord. It requires us to worship the Lord with our mind. Knowing the Scripture, being able to differentiate something that is sin from something that falls into the category of something that's just my preference. I think oftentimes this is why the issue of alcohol gets put into this passage in in 1 Corinthians, because it feels like probably the closest, most relatable thing that we can think of, right? I mean, you don't go to Meyer and they don't have separate meat cases for meat sacrificed to idols, meat not sacrificed to idols, right? That's not an issue that we're struggling with right now, is it? But there's other things, and the issue with alcohol always stands out, because in the Bible, drinking alcohol itself is not the sin, drunkenness is. Drunkenness is putting your hope and your joy into the things of this earth and not in your Lord. We see Jesus drink wine with his disciples. We see Paul tell Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of his stomach. We see these things happening in the Bible, but yet there's still a prohibition on drunkenness. That's a sin. We have to be willing to read. We have to be willing to study these things, and we have to be, make, or we have to be ready to make good, righteous, godly uh, decisions on how we interact with our brothers and sisters on this, right? This is something where we have some that choose to partake and others that choose to abstain. But how easy is it to disdain a brother or pass judgment on a brother when it comes to how they view view that issue with alcohol? There's a whole lot more to say on this along these lines, and in the next couple of weeks we're going to get there too. So I'm going to leave that where it's at, but take that for the example that it is. The point is right now, don't react. We worship the Lord. Singing songs like we do is one act of worship that we give to the Lord. We need to use our mind as an act of worship in these things. Our minds are to be conformed to Christ the way Paul tells us to back in beginning of chapter 12. When we do this, we understand, we will learn to understand. It may take time. It may not be instantaneous. But we'll learn to understand where his commands stop and where our opinions start. I think the third thing for us is that after we do these first two, we may find ourselves in a situation where we go separate ways. We have to be careful with that because in a place like America, it is incredibly easy to do. There's like six other churches just down the road there. 
you don't like something about this, Matt, you didn't do a good job preaching today, I don't like the music, I don't like this, I don't like that. You could hop from church to church to church to church looking for this like buffet of things that you want out of a church. This wasn't the case in first century Rome. They didn't have five other churches down the street. There was one, there was the church in Rome, and that was it. So they had to learn these things the hard way, quickly probably. We have to admit too, there are many places across the face of this earth that that still isn't the case. There are places where there's not six churches down the road. It's you and a small group of other believers, and it's your job to dig into the Scripture, to love one another with brotherly affection, to build each other up and to not raise these stumbling blocks in each other's lives. So you have to say, you know, we don't like the music here. Well, you have options in our current culture, right? And like I said, these options cause many people to church hop. It causes people to never get planted, never get rooted into a local church with people who will grow to know them, people who will grow to love them, people who can walk alongside them through the trials of life, where you build each other up in the faith, not tear each other down. Sometimes that happens by using our differences and opinions to help each other see something from an angle that we didn't quite think of before. So be ever slow to make a decision like that. The time may come where you have to. But make sure when it does, it's well-reasoned. It's done with the mind of Christ. It's not done in our flesh. It's not done in anger. Like I said just a minute ago, we're going to be walking through more of this over the next couple of weeks. But this main idea that we really need to cling to right now, that we need to remember is that we're in Christ, and we want to see our brothers built up in the faith. And we never want to raise a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brother. This theme runs all through chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, so we're going to be sticking with that for a few more weeks. So hang in tight with me, okay? We're going to need a little bit more time to deal with some of the implications of what Paul is teaching us here. Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves crashing into legalism. It's going to be one side of the, the, one side of the freeway, right? We're going to go barreling off into legalism real quick if we don't consider this well. And if we don't crash that way, we're going to sit there and overcorrect the other way, and we're going to go crashing into the opposite side, and we're going to crash into lawlessness. And we're going to be incredibly dishonoring to God by living lives no different than what we used to, but saying that we're Christians and saying that Jesus has saved us. If we miss that point, we're going to miss the blessing of this lesson for our lives. For now, though, as we get ready to go, I wanted to leave you with one last passage of Scripture. These are the words from James in uh, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Let's think of these things as we, as we come together to take Lord's Supper and we come together to worship. Think of these things and how we treat one another and, and how we should act as believers. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Father, we leave all of this in your hands right now, Lord. God, our lives are in your hands, Lord. We are clay. 
that is being formed by the potter. So Father, let us, uh, let us lay all of our own opinions, all of our own thoughts, all of our own designs and desires aside today. And Father, let us lay those things down to the foot of the cross. Because it's, it's on the cross, Lord, where Jesus bled and died and took on sin so that, Lord, we would be made clean and we would be made right with you through no work of our own. So, Father, let us respond rightly to that truth. Let us respond rightly to that glorious mercy that you have poured out onto your people. Father, let us just love one another well. Let us never raise up a stumbling block or a hindrance to one another in our walks, in our faith. Let us truly be people who outdo one another, showing, showing honor. And let us see each other, Father, just come to a, a greater knowledge and a greater view of, of who you are and the work that Christ has done. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.